Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the New Discourses podcast. In the middle of this long, long critical education theory series, I'm James Lindsay. We're in the middle of this thing. We're still slogging our way through. I promise there's just three more. This one and two more after this. Episodes, long episodes, in which we're going to explore Paulo Freire's book, The Politics of Education, which he published in 1985, which was comprised of a bunch of essays that he wrote between 1970 and 1985 that was put together with a lot of help by Henry Giroux, whom we'll eventually talk more about. Update, I learned how to pronounce, I bothered to learn how to pronounce Freire's name. It's Freire, not Freire or Freire or whatever. It's Freire. He's Portuguese. I'm Brazilian, but the name is in Portuguese. So at any rate, what we've done so far, we've worked through eight chapters of this book, plus it's Bizarre Forward by... Um, by Henry Drew, and we have basically figured out what's going on with Paulo Freire's work. So kind of the quick nutshell version of that is that Freire Marxified education. He created the idea of being educated itself as a Marxist theory, uh, as a form of property that certain people assign their own access to, to exclude other people. Those other people are the illiterate or the uneducated, or in fact, um, people who are regarded as ignorant, as not knowers, whereas the educated are people who are able to regard themselves as people who know. And he creates a Marxist theory of knowledge on the back of a Marxist theory of what it means to be educated. This isn't the same as the theory of knowledge that the postmodernists put forth, but what we'll find eventually if we get through enough of this critical theory of education stuff, or critical turn in education stuff, is that the postmodernists were able to graft, I should say the post-structural feminists actually, who were feminists who took up postmodern theory, were able to graft postmodern theory into the Marxist theory of knowledge created by Freire. And um, that's sort of how we ended up going woke. We've talked about not just that it is a Marxist theory of education, but also that it's a um, it, it, the, the nuts and bolts of how it works. In particular, we've talked about it as a process of knowing. Uh, we've talked about his generative themes approach to hijacking or stealing education out from under you. The generative themes approach of Paulo Freire works to hijack existing curriculum, say literacy curriculum, to make it be about political education, political literacy instead. And that's what we saw in chapter eight, the process of political literacy. Uh, or the process of political education, whichever one he called it, we saw that he uses this um, method known as codification and decodification, which is really where the word problematize became popularized within the woke canon, because the first stage of decodifying a codified generative theme in Freudian education is to problematize it. In other words, to point out how it falls afoul of a Marxist conflict theory of society. And so we kind of have a big picture of what Freire did to education as he retooled it to be a political education or a political education is a Marxist conscientization. Conscientization was the theme of the main thrust of chapter seven of this book. And that's what education is really about. Um, that should be and can be likened to the thought reform process 
engaged in in Maoist prison. So I ask you, if you're a parent, if you knew you were sending your children to a Marxist thought reform prison for three to, uh, you're sorry, for 35 hours a week, what would you do differently? Because in fact, you are. When you go to work and you go through a DEI session, this exact same methodology has been brought in by education scholars to create those DEI workshops in your workplace. And you're going through what you're experiencing there is a Marxist thought reform or brainwashing session, exactly like the ones that were used in Maoist prisons in China when Mao took over and then during the Cultural Revolution. So we have a vague idea. The only thing I left out, actually, which we'll turn to later, this is mostly chapter 10, and I'm going to do two podcasts on chapter 10, is that uh, Frede is also a profoundly religious character. Um, He was a liberation theologian and a post-colonialist before he got into Marxist theory, and this is really the basis of who he is. he's, He's prescribing the Marxist religion. He's reinvigorating the Marxist theology, and that's what makes him such a pivotal figure. It's not that he has this great theory of education. In fact, it's a terrible one. It is a very effective theory of conscientization, a very effective process for radicalizing people into Marxist thought to do a thought reform process that poses as education. It's very effective for stealing education. But in fact, what he's doing is a religious cult renewal. He is a um, revivalist of the Marxist cult, where Marxist religion had kind of fallen into um, malaise and weakness and stagnation um, through the critical Marxist period, despair, despondency. Henry Drew talks about this at the beginning of the book in the introduction that he wrote, that Critical Marxism is too negative, too critical, too lacking in forward vision. The Its revolutionary ambitions have fall, fallen apart, and it's entered into a state of despair. And what Frede comes along and does is offers a revival. It is a revival of the Marxist theology. The name for that Marxist theology as it matured is woke or woke Marxism. And so Frede really needs to be regarded as the father of wokeness, if you want to know what he's about. So now we turn our attention to the ninth chapter of this book, Humanistic Education. So humanizing the world is the Marxist goal, and we should talk about that before we get into what Freddy's laying out here. But to say that, um, it's obvious then that the humanizing education or humanistic education that Freddy is recommending or that he's designating his own project is the objective of his pedagogy of his method of teaching. The goal is to humanize not just the world, but man and society. This is basically what Marx is about. And this is this is throughout Marx's writings, but I think it, it was most clear for me to see it the way he writes about it in the Economic and Philosophic Manuscripts, which he wrote in 1844. For those who are keeping score, that's four years before the Communist Confession of Faith, a.k.a. the Communist Manifesto, was published in 1848. It wasn't published actually, though. These were kind of Marx's papers, in a sense. It wasn't actually published. Who had access to it, I don't know. Who had read it, I don't know. But it wasn't published until the 1930s. 32, I think, is when they finally actually published the Economic and Philosophic Manuscripts, which are three, if I remember, or four, um, three, I think, unfinished or not totally finished manuscripts that Marx had written. 
And I think it's very clear before he wrote the Communist Manifesto, I think it's very clear in these that what he's laying out is the tenets of a religion, of an entire theological worldview that deposes of God, replaces it with an idealized vision of man at the end of history uh, in a kind of Hegelian sense. And what he says in, in this economic and philosophic manuscript is that the world as it is is not actually suited for man, but man isn't suited for himself either. And so the project that he's actually advocating, all this economic stuff is tangential for Marx. Okay, Everybody thinks he was an economic theorist, and it's totally true. He spent basically the rest of his life after the Communist Manifesto working on writing and rewriting capital and focusing on capitalism and the economic theory, but there's a reason for that. And it's that he's plugging the economic theory for a reason into his religious architecture that he had laid out in his early and middle 20s. The economic and philosophic manuscripts of, 80, of uh, 44, 1844 were written when he was about 25 years old. And it's a very clear and explicit religious doc, uh, uh, document. It talks about economics. It talks about um, these the communism and capitalism and Adam Smith. But the point that he's making is actually very religious. It's a fundamental concept of man and the world, what it means to be human, how humans are not animals, what it means to be a human in a world without God, what it means to have been created in such a world. This is the essence, really, of the earlier manuscripts. And then later he's talking constantly about this humanization process. What he says that the division of labor coming into the world did, which works like the fall of man, is that it stole man's ability to know who he really is. It stole man's true nature from himself. The division of labor did. Um, and his true nature is as gods, as a creator, uh, somebody who can envision in his mind uh, something that he wishes to create and create it in the world, thus establishing this objective and objective dialectical relationship, blah, 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 blah. But in the process of his theology, through the praxis of his theology, the idea is that you can work your way back to your true nature. You can realize bits of your true nature and work your way back. And that true nature is perfectly socialist. That's the idea. So the perfect world is a perfect garden made to be inhabited by perfected socialist men who are living in a perfected socialist society. See, so Marx believed that praxis changes the world. So man's activity, when theoretically driven, changes the world. So the praxis changes the world, but the what he called the inversion of praxis is that the, the society that you create conditions you. So praxis, you go out and you change society as an, act, as an activist goal by reflecting on theory and putting theory into practice. But then the inversion of praxis is that the society makes you. So this is that thing I kept I keep saying. Society makes man, makes society, makes man. That's praxis, inversion of praxis, praxis, inversion of praxis. And what you're supposed to be doing is bringing yourself, according to Marx, back closer and closer to your true nature as a human being. You are remembering or recollecting what it means to be human. Remember that Hegel's philosophy was that we have to recollect the Prisca Theologia, that we have to re remember the ancient theology that is the one theology that all of the religions and philosophies of the world are attempting to approximate. We have to bring it back together and recollect it through a process of speculation and dialectical practice, where the theoretical and practical ideas are brought closer and closer together with each successive revolution in the idea, until finally the absolute idea awakens, creates the perfect idea that creates the perfect state, that creates the perfect society, and there's no distinction between any of them any longer. Marx just took this into the realm of the man. Man is now the 
holder of the idea, so the perfected man that holds the perfected idea at the end of history, is the kind of deity of Marxism. And what we're doing by our, our activism, in theory, Marxist theory is a glimpse of what the world is supposed to be. What we're doing is humanizing the world, humanizing ourselves, and humanizing our society by making them all socialist and fit for a socialist king to live in. So humanizing is, and humanism, as Marx phrased it, are just expressions of the goal of Marxism as Marx envisioned it, as he imagined it, that we're not, we've forgotten what it means because of the division of labor, what it means to be truly human. We've been alienated and estranged from our true human nature. And our job is to recollect what that true human nature is through the dialectical process that he took from Hegel, flipped upside down and made material by putting man instead of God at the peak of it. But no man on his own, absolute man who is a perfect socialist, who can only exist in a perfect socialist society that conditions him through the inversion of praxis back into a perfect socialist, but that can only live in a world that functions according to what a perfect socialist would need. It has to have the productivity levels, it has to have people willing to work, it has to have work be minimally uh, unpleasant, etc., etc. We have to make the jungle into a garden, if you will. So Freudian pedagogy works the same way. Freudian pedagogy, the goal is to have humanistic education. This is what Freud is telling us in this chapter, and this is what this is about. The goal is that for Freud to do what Marx was saying is a matter of knowing that you can do what Marx was saying, and that's the essence of his political education. So you have to be able to, you have to be a knower of the word that you use to transform the world. That's his idea. That's literally the thing he keeps saying over and over again in his work. So what you do by learning the political education that he's putting forth is that you humanize yourself as a knower. And then as you slightly humanize yourself as a knower, you can then put that into practice into the world to start the humanization process of the world. Okay. And so this is how he starts out. He says, the theme of an essay is not merely what appears on the surface in words. These people write everything in code. He says, there's always something hidden, something with a deeper meaning that is the key for complete understanding. Now, this is he's, he's offering this as a criticism, but listen to what he said. He's confessing, okay? The Iron Law of Book Projection never, ever misses. The theme of an essay is not merely what appears on the surface in words. There's always something hidden, something with a deeper meaning that is the key for complete understanding. So it's really easy to understand that he's talking about his own writing, too. Like, By the way, if you read this like 11 times and go read it against George Lukács and you read it up against Karl Marx and you read it up against, um, you know, other people with whom he'd been in traffic, Ivan Illich and, and you know, a handful of these other people, um, Rosa Luxemburg, maybe. If you read it against it, well, you can find the hidden message in it. It's always like this with these people. Everything is always, for them, everything is in code, so they write in code, and that code is justified because theirs is the correct one. Now, there was an idea by the time that this book was published that had come out of some other theorists. Um, I want to say, I'm getting them confused, whether it was Michael Apple. I think it was Michael Apple, and he had lifted it from another guy whose name might have been Jackson, but I'd have to go double check that. I just read it the other day, but the history is not that interesting to me in terms of these names, but Michael Apple was a Marxist educator through and through, and he put forth in 71 this idea of the hidden curriculum, which had which he had borrowed from this earlier idea that I think was written, the, 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 the concept was coined in 68. 
And so the hidden curriculum for, for Michael Apple was this idea that um, in addition to the actual curriculum of the school, there's a hidden curriculum that teaches people how to behave. It teaches people the expectations and norms of society. It teaches people how to manage conflict. It teaches people a mythology about how knowledge is structured. It teaches people, you teach all kinds of things that values education in a facially neutral education. So you don't even have to teach civics. You don't have to teach values explicitly, but the values of the given society are a part of the hidden curriculum. And so, as I've said throughout this series here and there, the goal is with Marxist education, with this Freudian Marxified education, is to make the hidden curriculum explicit and the actual curriculum hidden. You hijack education. You make the worldview values education the explicit program. And if people learn to read or do math as a in the process, because that's what you're pretending to do. Great. But that's really what this is. It's an inversion of education. Um, the hidden curriculum becomes a curriculum and the curriculum becomes a hidden curriculum. So when he's saying the theme of an essay is not merely what appears on the surface in words, we can easily understand this in terms of his beliefs and the critical pedagogy beliefs about hidden curriculum. But it's also clear that he's like I said, he's giving you a wink and a nudge about the content of his own essay. Now, if you remember from the Groomer Schools 4 episode we just put out here on the New Discourses podcast not that long ago, the one about the Drag Queen Story Hour, you'll remember that they say the same thing, that you have to learn to read between the lines. You got to put your makeup on or whatever so you can learn to read in more than one way. You got to read the room while you read the book. And they think they're so clever with this. They think they're so clever with this. But what it is, is that the Iron Law of Woke Projection never ever misses right here. It's right on the surface. And so to really understand Friday, what he's basically telling you is you have to be able to decode him. You have to understand that when he uses the word humanistic education, he means that you have to now invoke this 15 minutes or whatever of Marxist theory that I prefaced with. This is why I had to abandon this series when I started it in the middle of the introduction and go do this whole tangent theology of Marxism thing that's been like a co-project with decoding Friday at the same time all along is because you can't understand Ferretti unless you understand that he was a Marxist revivalist. So you have to understand the theology of Marxism that he was doing a revival of, and that he's transforming schools into churches, and transforming colleges into seminaries, and transforming teachers into pastors to usher you through the death and rebirth that we heard about in chapter 8, the true Easter. He says, accordingly, because you always have to look for the deeper meaning the hidden meaning. Accordingly, whenever possible, writing on or toward real issues entails an extensive effort to see through the deceiving appearances that may blur our vision. We often have to surmount a number of difficulties in disentangling the issues from these appearances so that we can perceive the, the, the total theme as an actual phenomenon in, the, in an actual world. Now we have a lot going on that we should pause. First of all, again with the Iron Law of Oak Projection. Marx liked to say that ideology is a mystification of reality and that Marxism is the true study, the Wissenschaft Socialismus or whatever, the scientific socialism, the, the, the true scientific study of history and its causes. Marx liked to say that his ideas, that Marxism alone cuts through the mystification of reality. But anybody who takes 30 seconds to look at it will realize that Marx is offering a profound mystification of reality into the dialectical, alchemical framework that he derived out of Hegel. It's a mystery religion. He derived out of Hegel and Rousseau, really. It's this mystery religion that combines Gnosticism and Hermeticism, kind of cobbles it together in a Christian framework that for Marx gets inverted into an almost demonology or demon, uh, demonic 
uh, imitation, um, where man is put center, uh, and, and first, and then the whole thing is, is, is then passed off as science. Okay. So the whole thing is a gigantic mystification of reality. And so when you read something like we often, we have to surmount a number of difficulties in disentangling the issues from these appearances so that we can perceive the total theme as an actual phenomenon in an actual world. This is what they're actually doing. This is how they pull off the friggin' mystification of reality by pretending they're unmystifying or demystifying it, which is what Marx said you have to do. That's what Marxism is for, is demystifying reality, when in fact it's really a cult mystification of reality. Um, remember that in the sixth chapter or whatever of this book, Friday said that you know every concept of education assumes, or every uh, educational theory or process or practice assumes a, theory, a concept of man in the world. And then he says the Marxist one, this subject-object dialectic that man is a transformative being, blah, 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 blah. And then he says that it's self-evident. He actually says all that. If you go back and listen to the relevant episode, the, the first of the two uh, from chapter six, where it's about the marginal man and the Marxification of education, um, you'll hear it. He, he actually says it. The, the, every theory of education or every practice of education assumes a concept of man in the world, and he assumes the Marxist one, and that one's obviously self-evidently true, which is the way that Marxists, when they believe their things, trick themselves into believing they have the only true description of reality that they're then going to foist on everybody else. So this is I mean, the iron law of vocal projection is always a confession. So disentangling their book. Why, why do I have a podcast at all? Why, does, why do I have a job? Well, my job is disentangling the difficulties and the issues from the appearances that are written in Marxist literature. It often takes me 10 times or so to read, 5 to 10 times, depending. This book, I think I'm on like my 14th reading to figure out, to disentangle the issues from the appearances. And then here's an example of it, though. We can perceive the total theme as an actual phenomenon in an actual world. Well, what the hell? Okay, actual phenomenon, something really happening in an actual world, in the real world. No, 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 no. He didn't say real world, and he didn't say true phenomenon or veridical phenomenon or uh, real phenomenon. He said actual. And so you go to the Marxist.org encyclopedia and glossary and you look up the word actual and you're like lo and behold it has a special definition in marxism and it says well you have to understand hegel's view of of actuality and then you go and there's an entire you know like chapter of a book that hegel wrote in impenetrable language explaining what actuality means and what it all boils down to as they explained on marxist.org is actual is that which has been made to become it's not which is it's that which the social process of history has brought into being Okay, so an actual phenomenon, and there we're even tapping into the phenomenological aspect, which is the belief that reality is your perception of reality, not yours, everybody's, the kind of blended perception, the perception of reality, in fact, is what the thing, how do I phrase it? The thing that we call reality is actually the name we give to our perception of reality. That would be the phenomenological um, kind of fundamental axiom. And so you're looking at something that happens in the world as we perceive it, as it was made to be by the social milieu. That's actual phenomenon in an actual world, in a world that was made to be this way by the social processes that led it to be as it is. So much going on here. The word actual is actually a curiosity of this exact type that needs to be demystified or disentangled. Because what did he say? 
Exactly. What did he say? The theme of an essay is not merely what appears on the surface in words. There's always something hidden, something with a deeper meaning that is the key for complete understanding. You can't get two sentences away from here in this same paragraph. And he's actually pulled this already on the word actual. Actual has a very specialized meaning in the Marxist and Hegelian dialectical leftist religion. It is that which is being or has been actualized through the work of praxis, whether that was conscious praxis or unconscious praxis, and has therefore been made to become real. When they say that something in the world is systemically racist and then implement DEI programs that make it racist, they are actualizing the racism there, and then they can point at that, and then what everybody in the outside of their cult says is the failure, they say is the revelation of what was actually there. And of course, Hegel offered a long discourse on actuality uh, and what it means within the dialectical religion he was creating upon which all of this is based. But the point here is that Friday's telling on himself, right? And what he's actually talking about is that you have to understand the world and in terms of you creating what you can imagine being and then saying that what we're interpreting is the world as it has been made by people who imagined it to be the way that it is. Therefore, it could be, what's the word? Reimagined in a different way. And that's where you hear, you know, well, what's your plan for the schools, woke people? And they say, well, there's going to be a lot of reimagining. Well, they don't know. They don't have the slightest idea. Humanistic education. They don't know. Remember in uh, chapter seven of this book, Friday said that if you actually know what, if you're utopian, if your consciousness is utopian, which means it's critical and then it's critical of the new thing after you're critical. So it's endlessly critical for perpetual cultural revolution. If you're actually utopian, if you know, you, you can't know where you're going. You can't know what that looks like. He says, if you know what the utopia looks like, you'll attempt to, it's not just what the critical Marxists say, or Marcuse, Adorno, Horkheimer, Marcuse is a special case. He's a little more optimistic about utopia. But if you look at Horkheimer and Adorno, they say that the utopia is something you cannot, you can't speak about. You can't envision. It just cannot be envisioned. Friday's saying something different. Friday's saying that if you imagine the utopia, you will impose it. So the very imagining of a utopia is a right-wing phenomenon. It's not that you can't do it. It's that it's right-wing to do it. It is a conservative, intrinsically reactionary thing to imagine the utopia in the forward direction. And so what he's saying is, you know, so when it comes to the school, you know, you say, well, what is your program to fix the school? They're like, oh, we're going to do a lot of rethinking and reimagining, which means they don't know. But what they know is that it has been, that people have imagined what school should be, actualized that, made it the actual state of schooling or the military or the United States or whatever other system you want to talk about. They've actualized that. And now what we need to do is take away we have to decenter what has been centered by that obviously failed experiment in their mind. We have to empower people who have a different way of thinking, who are conscientized, and then we have to allow them to reimagine. They can't know what it's going to look like. They have to imagine possibilities, and then you just kind of let those possibilities play out. And everywhere that it fails, everywhere that it doesn't work, is somebody else's fault. That's the program. That's the trick. That's the game over and over and over again. And so they don't know what it's supposed to look like. They know that they're supposed to reimagine because it has been imagined and actualized. So now it has to be reimagined and then that will become actual. And just like Friday said, you then become critical of the thing that just got brought into being 
after critical consciousness comes a revolution and after the revolution becomes a new sclerotic society unless you have a renewal of critical consciousness. So some new thing will be actualized after reimagining and what will have to happen is more reimagining and possibly a a turning of the guard. But in reality, human beings, once they seize power, tend not to relinquish it. And the Marxists 50 years later will say, oh, that's what they did wrong. But in the present, you end up with a freaking dictatorship, which is why communism is a sales department for fascism one way or the other. Either fascists with the communist ideology take over and implement it as dictators, or they break everything and somebody who actually knows how to do something in the world, like the World Economic Forum, steps in as actual dictators. Actual fascists step in and take over uh, and in, in the chaos that they create. Now, communism, one way or the other, is always the sales department for for fascism. This is, of course, the nonsense that Marcuse warned about when he's writing in the essay on liberation and repressive tolerance. He's basically laying out that there's only two options. Capitalism is going to fail. Liberalism is going to fail. That's the dialectic of enlightenment view. It's all going to fall into irrationality. So you have to either rescue it in communism, which is never going to work, and they don't know why, because fake is why, but they don't know that, or it's going to fall into fascism heaven or hell. You only have two choices. It's all really, it comes together very neatly. But we carry on, uh, you know, an actual phenomenon in an actual world, he says, you know, so this is what, just to, just to recap, put a stone, a capstone on that refers to something that was made through dialectical effort. Um, it is the theme that's been drawn out by the theorist into the world and has been made by praxis to be real in the moment, but it's still just a matter of a social social formation. That which is true is only true because it's true for the social formation that contains or that currently holds power. Um, so what does he say then is to be done with this uh, fact that there's always a hidden meaning? Um, he says, to do this, we address our theme through the richness of its network of specific characteristics that are sometimes not obvious. The more we are able to penetrate this network, though, the more we are able to capture the overall theme and its complex dynamism. So what he's really saying is he's revealing that they're Gnostics. This is the scientific Gnosticism at the heart of the whole dialectical leftist program, rearing its head again. From here, you know, after he sets out with this weird kind of theme thing um, and the the hidden meaning thing, which I'm not going to dive into in, in greater depth, the chapter actually shifts to a very explicit statement to this whole effect. The, the, the next section is titled Realizing a Theme, which could be called Actualizing a Theme, Making Real a Theme, Reifying a Theme, depending on if you want to use Lukacian language or some other language. Uh, what Friday wants to do is, or wants to instruct us in is how to use his critical method to correctly arrive at the theme that he wants, to realize it, to actualize it, uh, you know, as a piece of writing. So he says the process, and that's the, the, because he's talking about literacy, he's talking about a piece of writing constantly, you know, primers, reading, writing, etc. So he says the process of writing on a particular theme is not just a narrative act. In perceiving the theme as a phenomenon that takes place in a concrete reality and that mediates men and women, we writers must assume a nociological attitude. Now that's a weird word, nociological. That's not a word you hear every day. In fact, it's a word you never hear. It's a very peculiar word in the kind of genuine sense of it, not in the sense that it's strange, but in that it's peculiar to a specific way of thinking. But notice again, before we deal with that here, in perceiving the theme as a phenomenon that takes place in a concrete reality, 
<sighs> concrete reality refers to reality as it is understood by the Marxist. It is that which has been made concrete by the Hegelian synthetic process. Remember, he didn't do thesis, antithesis, synthesis. He made it practicable by switching it, even though he was an idealist, Hegel switched it over into that you start with the abstract and you meet it with its negative, usually by encountering that negative in the world, and then you end up with something concrete, which is a concrete understanding of the phenomenon in the world, which means a theoretical a Marxist, or in this, his case, Hegelian theoretical, but later Marxist theoretical understanding of the thing that you've run into. So a concrete reality means a Marxist interpreted reality. And the theme itself that's being written, when you write anything down as a writer, you're writing a theme that itself is a phenomenon that takes place in concrete reality. And the point of it is to mediate men and women. It becomes the thing that enables men and women to understand the world that they're in and what they're trying to learn and themselves as knowers. It's just a mediator. The world is a mediator of knowledge for Friday. It's not about learning about the world. It's about using the world to learn about the theory. It's mediating your knowledge of the concrete reality that's been actualized. And he says that it can only do this. We must assume a gnosiological attitude. Okay, so the theme is it is therefore expounding upon something that's occurring in the world as a Marxist perceives the world. That's the first part. Concrete is the Hegelian um, completion of a dialectical turn. And uh, what you have to do to do this right is adopt this nociological. That's G-N-O, S-O, or sorry, S-I-O, nociological attitude, G-N-O. SIO, nociological. Nociology is Gnostic epistemology. So he's not talking about a theory of knowing. And look this up. I'm not making that up. I'm not just figuring out what the word means by looking at it. That it is a <clears throat> attitude of, of, uh, toward knowledge that uh, abandons epistemology, which is what we call a theory of knowledge in philosophy, and adopts an, a theory of gnosis. It's a theory of knowledge where the special understanding of what has been hidden from potential knowers becomes only the Gnostics have a glimpse of the absolute knowledge, which is hidden. So that which is hidden is from the potential knowers becomes the guidepost to the true meaning of what you're trying to learn or know about. In other words, you need the Marxist attitude. You have to adopt, adopt a gnosiological attitude in order to use the world as a mediating object or the book that you're looking at or the lesson or the mathematics problem as a mediating object to have a political conversation. That's what he's saying. It is the backbone of Hegel's Vernunft and Marx's Wissenschaftlicher Socialismus. It's the source of Horkheimer's critical theory and what the Marxists, the woke Marxists refer to as the other ways of knowing, which have been excluded by official ways of knowing, established ways of knowing which have been excluded and repressed by the enemies of the Gnostic cult, in other words, in order to keep them excluded, to keep out their special, absolute Gnostic claim on knowledge. But what Freddy is actually saying is that to understand and appreciate a theme, or to communicate a theme, or to understand a theme through some mediating object like a book, a piece of curriculum, something in the world, you actually have to come at it with the secret Marxist Gnostic knowledge with a G, good knowledge, first. In other words, you have to be woke. You can only understand the phenomena in the world correctly if you're woke, which includes understanding that the world has been actualized by people who imagined it 
for their own benefit to be this way, and therefore it has to be seized so that it can be reimagined in a way that literally by definition can't know where it's going. But it'll work if we do that enough times. It's like if you have a tree and you want it to be the tree of life referred to in the Bible, and so you cut the tree down because it's not the tree of life, and it starts to grow back, and you cut it down again, and it starts to grow back, and you just keep cutting it down infinitely, whatever tree grows, that eventually the tree of life will be there. That's basically the critical approach. The utopia will happen. If you just bulldoze your land enough times, eventually it turns into the Garden of Eden. Because you have to obliterate whatever's there that's preventing the garden from being. So you bulldoze it, and you bulldoze it again, and you bulldoze it again, and you bulldoze it again. Anything starts growing up, you bulldoze it again. Kind of like the way my neighbor uh, kills his weeds with his uh, with his uh, tiller. He just tills the soil. The soil is like the most sadly dead, burnt dirt ever. Um, and he's, eventually, you know, this is going to turn into the garden, the Garden of Eden. If you just keep bulldozing it and destroying anything that comes up on it over and over again. That's the critical method. That's what Freddy is actually recommending. That's the the nonsense that he calls uh, consciousness or um, the stage past critical consciousness where you're critically conscious and then you go into another level of critical consciousness I refer to as utopian consciousness, um, which I've just recently kind of decided to start calling it that. Okay, so the theoretical disposition then, what Freddy is saying, the Marxist theoretical disposition is necessary to understand the world or the object of, of your lesson correctly, which is something we see throughout all of Marxist literature back to Marx. All the way forward, you can't understand the Marxism until you accept the Marxism. You can't actually understand Marxism until you have the socialist attitude, until you have the socialist mind. You can't live in a socialist society, Marcuse tells us, until you are biologically made suitable. If you, you have a biological foundation for socialism, it has to be built into man at the level of his vital needs. This is why their nociology is unfalsifiable. Falsification is a tool of epistemology, which believes that it does not have absolute knowledge, but is pursuing knowledge. That would belong in the Hegelian architecture to Verstand, and the critical and the Horkheimer architecture to traditional theory, and in uh, these um, Gnostic, scientific Gnostic cults, they are given a lower standing than Vernunft, or critical theory, which is the higher standing. In other words, that which we actually observe and understand in the world, verstand, I should say, it's not pronounced verstand, I got corrected by a German. What a surprise, I got corrected in my German. Uh, verstand um, is a low level that has to be subjected to the nociological, the Gnostic absolute truth, the glimpse at least. A nociological attitude, I think, is meaning that you have a glimpse of absolute truth, not necessarily that you have it. And this is what they think they have. And this is why teaching your kids to read and do math fails in the Freudian pedagogy commitment. Once you make the commitment to Freudian pedagogy, you're now assuming a not, an attitude where the math or the reading or the whatever lesson is a mediator to a political conversation. It's not the purpose, and you have to adopt that nociological attitude, the critical attitude that you're then going to infuse into the learner uh, with the educator as facilitator. So you're not going to learn to read or do math or learn science or history. You're going to use those subjects. This is the theft of education. It's not just even hijacking of subjects. It is the theft of education to be turned into Marxist thought reform. In other words, conscientization, as he called it, conscientization. What does he say about this? He says, to the contrary, we assume a committed attitude toward our theme. 
an attitude of one who does not merely want to describe what goes on as it happens. We want above all to transform the real world of our theme so that whatever might be happening now can be changed later. Reimagine, reimagine, reimagine. In other words, the point of philosophy is not to understand the world, but to change it. It's just a digested and regurgitated, repackaged statement of Marx. And there's the alchemy. The attitude he means, the nociological attitude, the disposition you have to have in order to ascertain a theme correctly, is the transformative one of the Marxist. You must get this into your head. We all need to know this. It is one of the most important concepts in the world right now for people to grasp onto. People are always asking me, what do I need to know? How do I identify this? How do I see it? If you see the word transformative or transformational or transforming or transform, it's probably, very probably, Marxist. Look at the context. If it seems weird that it's there, it's Marxist. Okay, so the attitude is that you are a transformer of history and that you're teaching people to be transformers of history, aka change agents. So educators should become activists to turn learners into know-nothing change agents to transform reality. That's the Freudian project. In trying to scientifically know the reality, he says, in trying to scientifically know the reality where our theme originates, we should not only submit our epistemological procedures to our version of, quote, the truth. Notice that he knows. He's not just using nociological as a synonym or a replacement, I should say, for epistemological. He's used, he uses both words in the same place, which means he means something different by them. It's not an accident, okay? And trying to scientifically know the reality where our theme originates, we should not only submit our, our epistemological procedures to our version of, quote, the truth, but also search for the truth based on facts. But truth and facts here means the Marxist interpretation of them. So for Stand, the lower level understanding in Hegel is epistemological procedures, and they should submit to the nociological vernunft attitude. This is Gnosticism, scientific Gnosticism, which is a calamity. He says, while we engage in the scientific research of reality, though, we must not assume a neutral attitude. We can't confuse our preoccupation with the truth, characteristic of any serious scientific effort, with the so-called scientific neutrality, which in fact does not exist. Again, vernunft over verstand. Wissenschaftlicher Socialismus over the bourgeois distortions of science, critical theory over traditional theory, consciousness over domestication, other ways of knowing over science, the science over science. Again and again and again, we see the exact same theme in different linguistic packages or different lexical forms. But we must engage the scientific research of reality Without a neutral attitude, it has to have a nociological attitude, which is going to have that Gnostic telos of escaping the prison of reality attached to it. We have to have a Gnostic telos attached. We have to have a vernunft. We have to have our higher level reason, which Marx condensed into the Wissenschaftlicher Socialismus, the scientific socialism, is what is necessary. Not bourgeois distortions of science, not bourgeois distortions of education. Rather, the nociological version. That's the only way we can learn, can use whatever object it is, math lesson, reading lesson, a text, a book, the world, the experience that we have, nociologically, in that disposition, to conscientize. 
So he says, Our committed but non-neutral attitude toward the reality we are trying to know must first render knowledge as a process involving an action and reflection of man in the world. So you have to do it as a Marxist. That's your nociological attitude. By virtue of the teleological character, I told you it's the Marxist telos is attached to this. By virtue of the teleological character and the unity of action and reflection, that is of praxis, by which a man or woman who, quote, transforms the world is transformed, he or she cannot discard this attitude of commitment that in turn preserves his or her critical spirit and scientism. I told you, it's scientific Gnosticism. It's fake science, okay? Um, but the teleological character, let me just pause in case you're not familiar with the word. Teleology means theory of purpose, okay? It means that there's a purpose to everything that you're doing. It's, it's a theory. It could be a theory, a small theory of purpose, like the purpose of the hammer is to drive in nails or to whack things or to defend your house, I guess, at the last need. And you can decide if it's a good hammer or a bad hammer as to whether it meets that purpose. But the, what's the purpose of being a human? What's the purpose of being alive? What's the meaning of life? That's a teleological question. And for Marxists, it is to transform the world into the garden, to humanize the world through humanis humanizing ourselves and society and our natural environment around us through our productive work. The worker does it with a hammer. The peasant does it with a sickle. That's the symbol. Okay. And so there's a teleological character to the praxis. There's a purposed intention to the praxis. It has to be going somewhere, which is to rebuild or to humanize the world. That's why it has to have a humanistic education that uses the objects of reality as they are actual, as they have been made by imagining them and building them to be where we are today, has to use the objects of reality as mediating objects to teach the political education that all is not the utopia that it could be. And that's your nociological attitude. That's your phrenimft hiding over Verstand, to which Verstand must submit. Understanding, science, traditional theory, etc. must submit to the, th the science, the theory, to critical theory, to, uh, to, to the Vernunft, to the nociological attitude. Epistemology must submit to nociology, to the Gnostic character of it, because that preserves his or her critical spirit and scientism the belief that science works like a religion. So again and again, we see this commitment and recommitment to Marxist theology and the underlying ontology, what it means, theory of being, to be a man, what it means to be in the world, what the purpose of the world is. That's the teleological part of that. Uh, and that those are bound together. In other words, this is the theology. The key, though, is that you must adopt a non-neutral orientation toward reality because there's a purpose to the course of reality, which in the language of Eric Foglin is to immunitize the eschaton, which is a fancy word that means bring about the end of the world, uh, the end of history, as it were, so that we can enter into the utopia that exists at the end of history. This is the essential Gnosticism of the dialectical leftist program. This is the goal of its scientism is to end the world as it is so that it can be reborn as the kingdom of God on earth. And you must have this non-neutral attitude toward understanding and communicating themes in order to be doing genuine work, according to Freire. You're not, Freire, you're not doing the humanistic education. You're not engaging in humanism unless you do this. And humanism is the Marxist idea. So on this non-neutral attitude, he elaborates, he says, we cannot remain ethically indifferent to the fate that may be imposed on our findings by those who have the power of decisions. 
but merely yield the science and its interests and subsequently dictate their aims to the majority. The more we get to know the socio-historical reality of the issues in our themes and their dialectical relation with opposing issues, the more impossible it will be for us to remain neutral. Since proclaimed neutrality always involves a hidden choice, we insist that these themes, while historical, incorporate human values and orientations in human experience. So all science, and he, from, he actually goes off all science, all social studies, all church, all everything, all teaching is inherently political because it inherently incorporates values, and therefore it inherently has to take those into account on purpose. We cannot remain ethically indifferent, he says. It doesn't matter. This is the best part. It's right at the beginning. We cannot remain ethically indifferent to the fate that may be imposed on our findings by those who have the power of decisions. In other words, if somebody calls bullshit on their analysis and their program, we cannot remain ethically indifferent to the fate that would destroy their program if they get called bullshit on because the people who are calling bullshit, even if they may have all like all the data on their side, my buddy Will Riley comes to mind on this point. Will is like the most will to beast something 630 or something like that on Twitter. You can go find him. Uh, will is like the most um, awesomely like empirical guy ever. He's like, no, the empirical data show this. No, the empirical data show that. No, the empirical data show this all the, all the time. And he craps all over the woke stuff, like brilliantly with it over and over and over again. Right. And so he comes to mind. So he is, because he has the, the, the power of the science of, of science, not the science. He has the power of actual empirical evidence on his side. He has the power Though he's one of those who have the power of decisions that will impose a fate upon their findings. Like, yeah, this is bullshit, bro. This is total bullshit. And he says, we can't remain ethically indifferent to that fate. We have to continue to push. We can't merely yield the science and its interests and subsequently dictate their aims to the majority. No, you have to have the nociological attitude. And he says, the more that you get to know the socio-historical reality of the issues in our themes in their dialectical relation with opposing issues, the more impossible it will be for us to remain neutral. You will not be able to accept that the science actually showed that you're wrong, that the data disagree with you, that reason unmasks you. That would be an ethical failure. Proclaimed neutrality, he says, always involves a hidden choice, so we can insist that our themes, while historical, are meant to incorporate human values and orientations and human experience. Just like what Max Horkheimer said about the critical theory, that it incorporates elements that the traditional theory, the cold instrumentalist traditional theory that actually understands the world, that it ignores, which is the human ethical dimension that humanizes the world for socialism. And this is the essence of critical Marxism. This is what we're hearing. There's always a hidden choice. You're either accepting oppressive structures in the societies that they produce, say by you know the data showing that that's how the world really works. Uh, or you're explicitly orienting yourself against it as a conscious ethical choice that only Marxists make correctly. Um, so the explicit choice is either you join us as a radical or you're part of the problem, including it doesn't matter if you have actual data showing that you're the problem. It doesn't matter if you have evidence. It doesn't matter if the school system that you infected with woke crap collapses. It doesn't matter. You have one and only one possible way to interpret it, which is that the theory is somehow correct. And this neutrality is impossible in their view 
And so only, uh, the, since neutrality is impossible in their view, uh, only the Marxist disposition and approach is ethically good. And this is their, I think, if you dig into Marxism, I think this is their most basic conceit, and thus their most basic deceit. And I say deceit with like a capital D, like the thing in the Bible called the deceiver. I kind of want to imply that very strongly. And he goes on, when we critically approach, aha, of course, when we critically approach, when we critically approach this process and recognize it as a theme, we are forced to apprehend this, not as an abstract ideal, but as a historical challenge. That means as a challenge to be met in the Marxist way to transform history consciously. Contrary to the dehumanization of our own objective reality, dehumanization and humanistic education cannot occur outside the history of men and women, he says, outside the very social structures that we have created into which we are conditioned. So there's your praxis and your inversion of praxis, right? We have created these social structures and we are conditioned to them. The praxis and then the inversion of praxis. Everything that exists has been imagined and then was actualized, so we need to seize the means of production to reimagine them and actualize something different because society creates man, creates society, creates man, creates society, creates man. Da, 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 da. So Freire uses this false choice of neutrality being an illusion to, by misplacing what he's talking about, about neutrality. He, to, he, he uses this false choice to erect a corollary false choice. It's not good enough that there's one false choice. There's a false choice, another false choice based on the original false choice. You must either choose humanizing education or dehumanizing education. You must choose humanizing interpretations of science, or you must choose dehumanizing interpretations of science. And humanizing means agrees with Marxism, and dehumanizing means does not agree with Marxism. That's his liberating approach. Okay? And so what he's saying is that you have to choose between his liberating approach and what he's called repeatedly a domesticating approach. If you go with, if reality has dominion over you, or if God has dominion over you, or if your teacher just knows more than you, or if the experts who are real experts actually know more than you, they're domesticating you. Now you can see that they're actually applying this as a weapon, and they are using the experts to try to domesticate the population. These people aren't totally crazy in pointing out that the, uh, the, the powerful people do this but they believe that it's a fundamental operating system of society and that it's constantly going on in a gigantic conspiracy theory that's not real is the problem. There is a conspiracy currently that is real, and it's probably got some elements of operation, but normally it's not actually that deterministic, uh, and it doesn't have to be that deterministic, and socialism isn't the only way out of that nightmare. Dehumanization, he tells us, is a concrete expression of alienation and domination. Humanistic education is a utopian project of the dominated and oppressed. Yeah, well, sounds like a great plan. Obviously, both imply action by people in a social reality. The first, that was dehumanization, in the sense of preserving the status quo. The second, in a radical transformation of the oppressor's world. This gets pretty tedious, doesn't it? But listen. Humanistic education is a utopian project. We have to remember what that means. Utopian project means, by definition, that you can't know what the objective is. If you know what the objective is, you will impose it, and it will not be utopia. Utopia, these people, by the point of the 60s, the 70s, the critical theorists started to become literal about utopia. Utopia means no place in Greek, or it's derived from 
no place in Greek. If you don't know where the word comes from, I think I've mentioned it a few times there was a uh, theologian and philosopher around 1500 by the name of Thomas More, and he wrote a satire called Utopia, where he described the perfect socialist society. And then, you know, it's got all these like weird little problems with it, but it's the perfect society, perfectly organized, perfectly managed. And he calls the place no place, doesn't exist, nowhere not there. And so the Marxists by the 60s and 70s start to take this myth literally, this Greek literally. Utopia is nowhere, but you get to nowhere by continually destroying the society that exists, as Marcuse put it, so that the society, the ideal society contained within it, or the better society contained within it, can be released, which is literally straight up hermetic alchemy. It's the idea that the divine is trapped within the mundane, and if you do the correct religious ritual or mystical ritual to the mundane, you can break open the mundane, release the seeds of the divine, and those will gather together. And your mundane metal, like lead, will transform into the divine metal of gold. Your mundane experience of the world, like death, will transform into the elixir of life, and so on. Your mundane mercury-based poison will turn into the elixir of life, really. should put it that way. And that's what alchemy actually is. Um, same thing. You can actually take the mundane expression of society, even if it delivers the goods and crack it open and the seeds of the utopia live within it. And what Friday's program is, is that actually lead turns into, you know, I don't know, palladium or some other bull crap that has lead turns into tin and tin turns into to iron and iron turns into cobalt or I don't know, something like this. And, and cobalt turns into copper. And if you keep going long enough, maybe you're going to get to the divine metal of gold. Um, but you get to gold by constantly destroying whatever the mundane expression is, you destroy that. And then when you get a new mundane expression, you destroy that too, which sounds exactly like how they try to manage our school. You know, take a failing school, put in a crap program, make the school worse, blame somebody else, ask for more money in another program that make it worse, do it again and again and again, whether it's restorative justice, whether it's social emotional learning, whether it's critical race theory, whether it's culturally responsive teaching, whether it's ethnic studies, whether it's just dumping money into a, a grift mill, who the hell knows? But it sounds exactly like what they're talking about. And it doesn't this get tedious? It's because they don't have the slightest idea of what they're doing, but they actually are utopian thinkers. They think that the perfect thing comes from destroying the imperfect thing because the perfect thing is somewhere inside of it, which is a mystery religion belief. It's literally alchemy. It's literally hermetic alchemy. They've added in an Gnostic belief that we are, we ourselves are the divine thing that's trapped and imprisoned in the mundane world. And if you have a special glimpse of knowledge, which is that you become aware of your trapped state, the chains that bind you, man is born free, Rousseau said, but everywhere he is in chains. If you become aware of the chains, you can understand something of the chains, you know the chains are there, then you have a glimpse of the Gnostic absolute knowledge. You have a glimpse of the need to escape the prison. You have the gnosiological attitude. So what else does Freire say about this? It seems important here, he says, to emphasize what is most obvious. Nothing is obvious with you, Freire, except that you're a crackpot and a cultist. The interrelationship of dehumanization and humanistic education. Again, both require action from men and women to maintain or modify their respective realities. We emphasize this to overcome idealist delusions and pipe dreams of an eventual humanistic education for mankind without the necessary transformation of an oppressed and unjust world. Such a dream actually serves the interests of the advantaged, 
and readily exposes an ideology that concretizes the welfare syndrome by urging the oppressed to wait patiently for sunnier days, delayed for now, but soon to appear. So what he's, what he's done here, both require action from men and women, and they have a choice. They can either maintain or modify their respective realities. And of course, we've just heard that maintaining, he literally said maintaining realities that exist today is dehumanizing, whereas modifying them in the liberatory direction or the humanizing direction, the Marxist direction, is the only ethical path. And he says, you, the, 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 what he's emphasizing, we emphasize this, he says what? That they require action to overcome idealist delusions, he says, of an eventual uh, pipe dream, of an eventual education without the, the, that's humanistic without transforming the world first. He's telling you there's no such thing and this will be important when we talk about the church, when we go through chapter 10, there's no such thing as an education system, he's saying. No such thing as an education system that is actually liberatory until we transform the world. So the society creates man, creates society, creates man thing. Turns out that that's true here too. Society creates the institution, creates the society, creates the institution. It plays out on that level as well. And if you don't understand this, that you actually have to be taking action to end injustice and oppression as people like Freire, in other words, Marxists, see it, unless you are actually taking that action and you think you're reforming the school, what you're actually doing is serving the interests of the advantage and exposing an ideology that concretizes the welfare system. And how does it make things worse? By er and, and, and they literally think that this takes a bad situation and makes it worse because they make it, it gives people like their opium. It softens the blow, opium of the masses or whatever, softens the blow of their suffering, takes away their revolutionary impulse because it urges the oppressed to wait patiently for sunnier days that are just delayed for now, but will appear later, which is the message that the powerful want to tell people to buy time to not change things and keep benefiting themselves. So the message Freddie is sending here is you cannot help at all until you go fully Marxist. Like he said in the previous chapter, and he's going to elaborate on a lot in the 10th chapter, you actually have to die and be reborn as a Marxist, or you can't do it. You can't actually help. You only do things that serve to help oppression unless you become a full-blown cult member. Humanizing education, or humanistic education. Everything else you do will continue to oppress while obscuring the true nature of oppression, and that's really important, obscuring the true nature of oppression and inducing the oppressed into inaction, the opiate of the masses. This is, of course, exactly what critical race theory says about racism. Only critical race theory can actually be anti-racist. Everything else is racism perpetuated and hidden better while calming down any potential radicals, domesticating potential radicals. The exact same thing Marx said about the role of religion as the opiate of the masses. It's, it, it, it enables them to suffer well without their suffering motivating them to the action that would cause them to throw off the society that oppresses them. He says in, in that, which is the critique of Hegel's philosophy of the right, written at the beginning of 1844 and end of 1843, he, he says there that, that throwing off religion, the critique of religion and throwing off religion gives you the need as a human being to take action to throw off the conditions that made religion necessary in the first place, which are the crappy conditions of life where you're suffering. So 
by throwing off religion, you realize we only, you come to realize, this is Karl Marx saying this, that we only needed to pretend that religion was real so that we could anesthetize ourselves to the fact, so we could numb the pain to the fact of reality. And instead, now that we're facing that pain in truth, we're no longer taking our numbing agent, we can now take on society and end the conditions that made us need to take a palliative in the first place. That's as though... That's literally what Marx is saying. That's what Freire is backing up here again. He says there is no humanistic dimension in oppression, nor is there dehumanization in true liberation. So he's deepening the false choice. He's deepening the mythology. He's deepening that you must be fully committed to his ideology or nothing else. That's the trick. If it causes or abuses or oppresses then real liberation hasn't been tried yet. There is no humanistic dimension in oppression, nor is there dehumanization in true liberation. That's what he said, which means if they implement something and it still sucks, there was dehumanization in it, so it wasn't true liberation, and true liberation hasn't been tried yet. He says, but liberation does not take hold of people's consciousness if they are isolated from the world. Liberation, that's what religion would do, it would opiate you. Liberation occurs in their historical praxis when it involves a critical consciousness of the implicit relationship of consciousness in the world. So only critical Marxism, we can conclude, can offer liberation. And that's why education can't be neutral, is what he's going to tell us, and that it's worth it. He says the educator who has made a humanistic and therefore liberating choice is less apt to be committed to preconceptions, <laughs> bullshit, and accordingly, in his or own pra- in his or her own practice, there uh, will be able to appreciate the dialectical relation of consciousness and world or man. And sorry, I've I've botched that part. Um, let me reread that. The educator who has made a humanistic and therefore liberating choice is less apt to be committed to preconceptions and in his or her own practice will be able to appreciate the dialectical relation of consciousness and world or of man and world. So the Iron Law of Oak Rejection never misses. Your special, spelled with a G, good knowledge of the purpose of history and the nature of liberation but no preconceptions is basically what you get when you adopt the Marxist consciousness. No preconceptions like that the world is fundamentally stratified in a class conflict or that man is a transformative being that operates in a subject-object dialectic and that there's a perfect world that can be obtained through relentless criticism of all that exists and it's in need of this salvation, or not of salvation actually, but of emancipation from that which keeps it from being gold in the first place, or leaden mundane reality. Yeah, the Iron Law of Oak Projection never misses. There is no preconceptions adopted here. Just the ability to get into the dialectical relationship that he said is self-evident, which is the preconception, of course. And so he distinguishes these approaches. He says, in essence, one of the radical differences between education as a dominating and dehumanizing task and education as a humanistic and liberating task, is that the former is a pure act of transference of knowledge, whereas the latter is an act of knowledge. So you have a choice. You have a banking education, or you can groom. But all of them are actually grooming, right? Banking education grooms people to 
the end of the society as it is. And so they have to do a sociological or whatever, liberating grooming education to groom people into being activists who understand the world on their terms and therefore liberate it. So everything is grooming. Grooming school is everything. And it has to be grooming for humanism. As expected, he says, both these radically opposite tasks, this uh, domesticating education versus humanizing education, which also require opposing procedures, revolve around the relation between consciousness and the world. In its relation to consciousness in the world, education as a dominating task assumes that consciousness is and should be merely an empty receptacle to be filled. Education as a liberating and humanistic task views consciousness as an intention toward the world. Of course, that intention, he puts that in quotes, by the way, that intention is transformation of the world according to Marxism. And it's an intention toward objectives that Marxists aspire to, like utopia, communism, everybody being a Marxist, everybody thinking of themselves in terms of being a Marxist subject, seeing subject meaning yourself and object meaning other people in a fully synthesized socialist way. That's the intention toward the world. Well, there's not enough straw in his straw man yet, so he's going to pack some more in here. He says, in the case of dominating education, the captor of existing knowledge negates the active principle of consciousness. So the, the captor of existing knowledge, right? So people who know things have captured existing knowledge. They've captured it. It's theirs, and it's stolen, and they hold it, and they're not letting other people have it. What you need is like a Prometheus to come in and take it back and give it to the people, right? And that capture of existing knowledge negates the active principle of consciousness. So what he's doing is he's framing education within the existing system as people who have captured knowledge, or something they call knowledge, for their own purposes— negating the actual point of consciousness, the active principle of consciousness. They're domesticating people. So Friday's Gnosticism isn't hiding very well at all, but this is Marxist Gnosticism. So those that are mystified by the ideology and the social structure of existing society are seen as the jailers of mankind, just like old-school Christian Gnostics, for example, saw the God in Genesis. I don't know if you know that story. Very briefly, they think that there is a true deity behind the deity, that God in the story is some kind of a demigod or even a demon who has imprisoned humanity, doesn't want humans to realize that they are beings like himself, therefore keeps them away from the fruit of the tree, trees of knowledge and of uh, the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life, which would give him the ability to be an ethical knower and the ability to uh, live forever. So humans become the pets of this demon in the garden, but if they were to eat of those trees, they would realize that they're actually the same thing, and so they are jailed within the garden by this jailing demon that calls himself God, and then when they disobey the rules by eating the fruit of the tree, they get thrown out of the garden, and they are jailed in the world and jailed in their bodies, high transactivism, uh, as a result. And so the jailer is still the thing that they call God, and so what Freire's doing, like what Marx did, is he set it up that the privileged in society are the jailers. They've captured knowledge, they've captured private property, they've captured capital, they've captured whiteness, and they're holding it captive. And they 
use it to negate the activity of consciousness of everybody else to keep them from knowing who they really are to keep them jailed up in the uh the the, the flungness of their being and the oppression that they have so that they cannot so that the lower class cannot become like the people in the upper class who have captured the flame of knowledge or the property of whiteness or the private property of capital blah 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 it's the gnostic idea transmuted into so-called material conditions. I never said earlier why Marx was so obsessed with economics, and it's easy to say. It's that he wanted people to give him money, but because Marx was so obsessed with the idea of people giving him money, paying his bills for him, or not having to pay bills at all, he believed, because it determined most of his thinking, because he wanted to be able to write and screw around and do art or whatever it was that he wanted to do all day without having to worry about making money, he was so obsessed with the idea of money and how money is made that he believed that economic conditions determine people's social reality. It's economic conditions that are overwhelmingly determinant. Now, we'll be a little bit fair to him. He's looking out at industrial capitalism in the 1840s and thinking, wow, this is screwed up. Um, And in a lot of cases, it did determine people's uh, range of life. Company towns, which were coming into existence not that long after, are a nightmare, for example. Um, You should go listen to the the old song, 16 Tons get a sense of what that's like. You should look up company towns and see how those operated. So it's not that he was like making it up whole cloth, but this motivation that economic conditions actually create uh, your range of who you experience yourself to be as a person came from largely the fact that Marx was obsessed with the fact that paying for things was a huge limitation on who he wanted to be. And so he created a gigantic economic theory to plug into his religion or a gigantic economic um, program or subroutine or artifice to plug into his his religion of transforming reality through a combination of Gnosticism and Hermeticism uh, as a mystery religion that's upside down Christianity. Freire just readapted this into the frame of education. He says this form of education involves practices in which one strives to domesticate consciousness. That's what he's saying about the captors of knowledge, the Gnostic deity, uh, sorry, the Gnostic sub-deity that's posing as deity that's actually the jailer of man. Um, this form, the, the prevailing form, any form that's not his of education involves practices by which one strives to domesticate consciousness, transforming it, as we said, into an empty receptacle. But that's exactly what the Iron Law of Oak Projection never misses. Education and cultural action for domination is reduced to a situation in which the educator is the one who knows, and as such transfers existing knowledge to the learner as the one who does not know. Now listen, that is the Marxist theory of knowing, right there. For Friday, the educator is posed as the one who knows, and the learner is posed as the one who does not know. And he says this is a this is a stratification of society in terms of who has status as a knower. The knower is the educated person, so people who are educated are deemed knowers. The uneducated person is the person who does not know. The myth or the ideological contraption of education, the ideology of being educated, separates these two and maintains a separation, but he says that's false. And he offers a contrast to his Marxist straw man of knowledge as a Marxist theory. And he says his contrast is in a humanistic form of education. Once we verify our inquisitive nature as researchers and investigators of reflexive and not merely reflective, 
consciousness. And once we make that knowledge accessible, we automatically ascertain our capacity to recognize and remake existing knowledge. So once again, the Gnosticism isn't even slightly concealed. They ascertain their capacity to recognize and remake existing knowledge, okay? They are the people who have the, they're, they're like the people who have reached in and stolen the fire of heaven like Prometheus and her. They're bringing it to the people where the captors have kept that flame to themselves. Okay. Now, reflexive, he made a point of using this word that's with an X. Reflexive, not merely reflective consciousness. He didn't want people to be confused and think that he was using archaic spelling of reflective as reflexive. Reflexivity is alchemy. It's social alchemy. It's the same reflexivity that's described in George Soros's 1992 book titled The Alchemy of Finance. The alchemy of finance is to use reflexive marketing, more or less, to move financial markets around to make money. So it's a lot of it's actually illegal. You cannot, for example, short a company and then go publish a bunch of bad articles about it uh, to create a reflexive move against that company, to a reflexive environment where it's perceived in a particular way, causing their stock price to drop and you to win as the shorter, which is what George Soros did to the British pound in uh, the lead up to writing The Alchemy of Finance, made himself a lot of money doing it. Um, a reflexive idea is one that becomes true. And it's not to say that nothing is reflexive. Uh, the paradigm example I was given that I repeat a lot is the statement, this is a revolutionary moment, is a reflexive statement. It's not true or false in and of itself, but it becomes true or false depending on what people do with it. If nobody believes it, then the revolutionary moment will not manifest. It will not be a, man of, a revolutionary moment, and the statement was false. If, on the other hand, it is the moment where, you know, somebody standing on stage in the biggest right kind of audience says, this is a revolutionary moment. And everybody's like, yeah, and it becomes a turning point in history. Then it became true because people believed it. And so a reflexive statement is something that becomes true because people believe it or that remains false because people don't believe it. It's not true or false in and of itself when it is stated. Now, a reflexive environment is one in which the same theme, since this is about recognizing a theme, gets reflected back to you again and again and again and again from all corners. So basically every psyops that the media has pulled on you, they decide that something is the new current thing and everything has to go bonkers and repeat it again and again and again. It's coming from everywhere. It's on TV. It's on the news. It's in your shows. It's coming in from your kid's education. It's coming down from your boss at work. It's everywhere. It's just the new thing that everybody has to think about. The current thing is made a thing by being the object of a reflexive environment. It's being willed into existence dialectically. And so he says, humanistic form of education, once we verify our inquisitive nature as researchers and investigators of reflexive consciousness, of the fact that we make our consciousness by believing it and then manifesting the prophecy in reality, by making it so ubiquitous around us and so... Um, by, 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 by coming to believe our own prophecy, by speaking the word to transform the world, as it were... Uh, when we realize the reflexive capacity, the alchemical capacity that we have to do the magic spell to transform our consciousness and thus transform the world, when we believe our own bullshit, when we smell our own farts, whatever metaphor that you want, that is when 
we automatically ascertain our capacity to recognize or to remake existing knowledge, he says. And that's the point of his humanistic form of education, is to recognize and remake existing knowledge. Moreover, he says, we can identify and appreciate what is still unknown. If this weren't so, that is, if this type of consciousness that recognizes existing knowledge could not keep searching for new knowledge, there would be no way to explicate today's knowledge. Since knowing is a process, knowledge that exists today was once only a viability, and it became a new knowledge, relative and therefore successive to yesterday's existing knowledge. And they'll tell you, this is the most self-serving paragraph of confusion I think I've ever read. I mean, I actually almost want to try to read it in Kamala Harris's voice and intonation. It would almost be perfectly fitting, as long as I said the word together every few words. It's the most self-serving thing I think I've ever read. Look at what he says. He says, well, we'll just do it like Kamala Harris. We'll add in the togethers. Um, Remember, though, when we do this, his remark that he made before about the I think is only possible in terms of we think. I think is fulfilled in we think. The individual is fulfilled in the collective or in the class. That's a common Marx. That's class consciousness, actually. That's literally Lukacian class consciousness. So we could just redo that paragraph. Moreover, we can identify and appreciate what is still unknown together. If this weren't so, that is, if the type of consciousness that recognizes existing knowledge together could not keep searching for new knowledge together, there would be no way to explicate today's knowledge together. Since knowing is a process we do together, knowledge that exists today was once only a viability, and then it became a new knowledge. We came to together, relative and therefore successive to yesterday's existing knowledge, which we knew together and went beyond together. Now, I I make jokes, right? But listen to what it really says. The together part does point out something important with Friday, which is that he thinks that the we think that the collective is how we have to understand these things together, right? But here's what he's actually said. He's like, hey, guys, did you notice that we learn? We used to think things and then we thought different things. And so it was a process of learning. Therefore, we are transforming what it means to have knowledge. Therefore, the Marxist transformation of knowledge. This is why it's so self-serving. This is why it's so frustrating. Therefore, the Marxist interpretation of transforming knowledge as whatever makes Marxism true in the given social circumstance is the way to go. It is a complete misinterpretation of what it means to develop a body of knowledge in terms of saying that you're transforming what counts as knowledge in a kind of bogus way. This is the exact same mistake that the postmodernists make, by the way. So anyway, the next part that he writes, I would rather skip, to be honest. Um, It's kind of hard, but we've actually got to hit this. Um, He says, instead of being an alienating transference of knowledge, education, or cultural action for freedom is the authentication of knowledge by which learners and educators as conscious or as ones filled with intention join in the quest for new knowledge as a consequence of their apprehending existing knowledge. So that was a complicated little phrase that elaborates on what we just said, but what it is is it's a challenging or difficult way for Marxists to say that they get to decide what counts as knowledge based on their own misunderstanding of what's going on in the world, because the unfolding of knowledge is always a process of unfolding misunderstandings of the world. 
That's what it boils down to. But again, he says, if education as a practice of freedom is to achieve this understanding of existing knowledge in the search for new knowledge, it can never do so by treating consciousness in the same way dominating education treats it. So you can't just teach Marxism, he's saying. You have to Marxify education into a system of cult thought reform. And that's what Freudian pedagogy is, right? That's what he says. Education as a practice of freedom, he said, is to achieve this understanding of existing knowledge in the search for new knowledge. And you cannot do it by treating consciousness the same way that that domesticating education treats it. You have to actually treat the concept of knowledge in the Marxist way before you can approach the concept of educating in a Marxist way. The educator, he says, who makes a humanistic choice must correctly perceive the relationship between consciousness in the world and man in the world. He has to understand things as a Marxist. A liberating form of educational practice, he says, by definition, proposes an archaeology of consciousness. Through their own efforts, people can remake the natural path where consciousness emerges as the capacity for self-perception. So the Marxist ontology of man and teleology of history are again central to what Freudian education, or what Freud sees as education. What any Freudian pedagogue would see as a legitimate education means that you have to assume the Marxist theory of man and the purpose of history. And he calls this the process of humanization, which he says into Portuguese for some reason or another, which is to humanize the man, humanize the society, and humanize the world. He says, in the act of humanisachau, humanizing, becoming human, which can refer to the historical process where man, in his evolutionary progress, no longer is a mere great ape, but is humanized, or it can refer to the process in the future of humanizing people into the ideal socialist, in the act of hominis achau, in which reflection establishes itself. One sees the, quote, individual and instantaneous leap from instinct to thought. That's what sets us apart from animals. We have thought instead of mere instinct. It says this is so because at the very remote moment The reflective consciousness characterized a human as an animal capable not only of knowing, but also of knowing himself or herself in the process of knowing. Thus consciousness emerges as an intention and not just a receptacle to be filled. So consciousness is the awareness that you are able to make yourself as a creator. That's what he's saying. And that's the decisive moment of humanization when man and his evolutionary course is no longer an ape and becomes human. It's in the very moment when he's not only capable of knowing or being conscious, but that he's able to know himself in the process of knowing. This is exact it, this is so freaking cheap. It's exactly what Marx said about consciousness, that what sets man apart from animals is not about knowing, it's about consciousness. All he's done is reach all he's done actually is translate Marx's view of consciousness into the concept of knowing, right? If you know, then you're conscious. And I think therefore I am or something. And so what Marx said is that what distinguishes man from animal is that he's not only conscious, but he's conscious of being conscious. He's conscious of the process of his consciousness. That's what makes man unique among all the animals. That's what makes him human. That's what makes him different. That's what he's saying here. And the moment of the act of humanization is when the human as an animal becomes capable not only of knowing, but of knowing himself in the process of knowing, knowing himself as a knower. 
thus consciousness emerges as intention and not just a receptacle to be filled. So this is a religious view of what it means to be human. And the existential scream that I've referred to a few times, we are not just animals, of Marxism is heard very clearly yet again. Again, the, trans- the intention, though, that he refers to that's impregnated in the act of knowing and knowing that you know, or consciousness and being conscious of being conscious, the intention of deepening knowledge or deepening consciousness of what we truly are, the intention is to transform the world and man into a higher order thing through sublation, through Alfhaven. It is to become Marxist and thus to become socialist man, where we've truly realized who we actually are, what it is that makes us human, which is being conscious of being conscious. And being conscious of being conscious, we realize that we're conscious of ourselves as socialists. This critical perception, he says, obliterates the simplistic dualism that establishes a non-existent dichotomy between consciousness and the world. See, he says consciousness and the world, they're not different. They're part of the same thing. So he's trying to solve the hard problem of consciousness, Paulo Freire is, using Marxism to do it. That's what they claim that they have. This is at the heart of their religion. On the other hand, it corrects the mistaken notions that breed naive consciousness. Ideolo- uh, sorry, ideolo- ideologized. There we go. Uh, so let me reread that. On the other hand, it corrects the mistaken notions that breed naive consciousness, ideologized in the structures of domination, such as the perception of consciousness as an empty receptacle. So everything else is an ideology. The more anesthetized men are in their reflective power, there's your opium of the masses through religion, which they acquired in the revolution and which they now fundamental, which now fundamentally distinguishes them from animals, the more obstacles they find in the process of truly liberating themselves. So this is that existential screaming, and this is a religion. It is crucial, he says, for a dehumanizing ideology, that's the bad kind, to avoid at all costs any opportunity for men and women to perceive themselves as reflective, active beings, as creators and transformers of the world. Your true nature is a creator and a transformer of the world. We are as gods, and a dehumanizing ideology exists at all costs to prevent people from believing that about themselves. So we are but man and there is God, that's religion, that's a dehumanizing ideology that's working at all costs to prevent men and women from perceiving themselves as reflective, active beings, as creators and transformers of the world. This is a religion that poses uh, the positions man as God, as his own creator, and in fact, as his own savior. So that is, domesticating education must prevent people from believing themselves to be as gods or to be, uh, or from being on the dialectical path to becoming gods as socialist man that Marx laid out. Indeed, Freire says, it is in the interest of this ideology to formalize domesticated consciousness in terms of an empty receptacle. And he just keeps repeating that straw man. You're either doing the thing in the Marxist liberating way, human, humanizing way, or you conceive of beings who are learning or people who are learning as empty receptacles to be filled in with the crap that you already think, thus turning education into a mode of reproduction instead of a mode of teaching people to actually know things, reproducing the existing society in that hidden curriculum. Before acting on and fulfilling their objectives, he says, the dominant classes must confront one obstacle they have been attempting to overcome with increasing efficiency through the science and technology at their disposal. Since they are unable to eliminate the human capacity to think, they obscure the real world by a conditioned and specious reasoning about people in the world in general. 
So in other words, that's the false consciousness conspiracy theory. And he says, this mystification of reality consists of making the world appear different from what it is and in the process and by necessity of imparting an artificial consciousness. See? So once again, we see the exact same thing. They have adopted the Marxist dialectical frame, worldview, religion, theology. They have adopted that as self-evidently true, and they are now characterizing, that's your pseudo-reality, and they're now characterizing all descriptions of reality as a mystification of reality. They have a mystification of reality in that it's literally a mixture of, of, of mystery religions, alchemy, and hermetic alchemy and Gnosticism hammered into a perverted Christian framework and called science. That is their mystification of reality. And they literally have mistaken it through the pseudo-reality reality thing that I talked about a lot over the last couple of years. They have mistaken or they've lost the ability to tell their pseudo-reality from reality. So they think that reality is the mystification of reality, whereas in fact it is their own pseudo-reality. And this is, of course, if we look at John Baudrillard, the postmodern philosopher, uh, who's a bit different from the other ones, where he's really hammering on something. His idea of hyper-reality that he describes uh, is the state of not, it's it's the state of occupying pseudo-reality and not being able to tell. That's what hyper-reality is, that you think all descriptions of, you're in hyper-reality when you think all, think all descriptions of reality are fake. That's Baudrillardian hyper-reality. And that is the thing that the Marxists are constructing, and that is the thing into which you must be conscientized through Frarian pedagogy. You literally are getting inducted into the matrix, if we use that metaphor. In fact, Freddy says, it would be impossible to falsify the real world as the real world of consciousness. So, Marxist theory without also falsifying the consciousness of the real world. It would be impossible to falsify the real world as the real world of consciousness without falsifying the consciousness of the real world. One does not exist without the other. So in other words, what he's saying is that domination must create false consciousness in order to suppress Marxist consciousness. That means that only Marxist consciousness is able to break free of false consciousness. So everything opposing Marxist consciousness, or different than Marxist consciousness, comes from false consciousness, an artificial consciousness of reality. So concepts like white fragility, privilege preserving epistemic pushback, other ways of knowing, decolonizing, willful ignorance, epistemic violence, etc., 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 all come to mind as the ways that they are trying to describe this phenomenon that they think is well, basically, it's how they're they're trying to paper over the fact that they have the mystification of reality, and they want people to believe that it's the only true description of reality. They're trying to paper over the fact that they live in hyper-reality, and they're trying to drag everybody else into hyper-reality. Problem is, is if you live in hyper-reality, you don't know what reality is anymore, which is what Yuri Bresnimov called, um, or Bresnimov called a uh, demoralization, when you can no longer tell what reality is. Other people call it psychopathy. They are wanting to drag everybody into that frame so that we can build the utopia they believe happens when we all occupy that frame. The mythical element, he says, introduced here does not actually forbid people to think. Rather, it makes the critical application of their thinking difficult by affording people the illusion that they think correctly. 
Propaganda establishes itself then as an efficient instrument for legitimizing this illusion, and through it, the dominating classes not only proclaim the quote excellent quality of the social order, but also impugn any expression of indignation toward the social order as quote subversive and dangerous to the common welfare. Thus, mystification leads to the quote sacredness of the social order, untouchable, undiscussable. Anyone, or sorry, any who question the social order must be punished one way or another. They are labeled by similar, similar means of propaganda as, quote, bad citizens in the service of the international demon. The international demon is communism, by the way. What he's saying is anybody who tries to call out the Marxists is just trying to make the existing oppressive society sacred, unquestionable. They can't possibly have a point. They're just trying to legitimize the illusion reality and hyper reality gets switched reality and pseudo reality gets switched in their positions when you occupy hyper reality according to Baudrillard they live in hyper reality and they're trying to claim that everybody else lives in the false reality and they live in the real reality and they say that anybody who tries to call them call them out or so anybody who tries to to uh, be a Marxist who break free of this gets labeled terrible things like subversive and dangerous to the common welfare, or as bad citizens in service of, he doesn't say communism, he says the international demon. He then, at this point, cites uh, Dom Helder Kamara, the red bishop, the Marxist bishop who was mentored not just to, Freire, uh, to Friday, but also to Pope Francis and also to Klaus Schwab. And Klaus Schwab brought Dom Helder Kamara to Geneva, or to Davos actually, to speak at the the fourth meeting of the World Economic Forum in 1974. Um, almost couldn't get away with it. If you listen to, to Klaus Schwab, has a video where he's describing this himself, and he almost couldn't get away with it because Dom Heller Kamara was regarded as a communist, and it was therefore illegal at the time in 1974 for him to speak in Switzerland because he was a communist. And so the international demon here is communism and any specific communist who is being effective. As it turns out, Freire worked with Dom Heller Camara a little bit in Recife before uh, they both left Brazil, but he worked with Dom Heller Camara much more significantly in Switzerland because in the 70s, uh, and in 1970, in February of 1970, uh, Freire left, he was, at, at, he was at Harvard at the time, and he left Boston and went to Geneva to work for the World Council of Churches, where he stayed for 10 years, making frequent trips back and forth to the United States in the meantime. But he lived primarily in Geneva for, for 10 years. And when Kamara came over via Klaus Schwab to uh, Davos, to Switzerland, they worked together again rather significantly. Kind of an interesting little piece of history. In the final section of this chapter, Freddy turns to society and education and the Iron Law of Oak Projection, which is already at festival levels, hits something of a peak, believe it or not. This is a really weird section. He says, in it is characteristic of the permanent search for humanistic education that the more you have freedom to criticize, the more necessary is the sacredness of the domesticating social order for its self-preservation. So he's saying as freedom increases, so does the conspiracy theory. And you can guess where this is going. It says, for this reason, all attempts at mystification obviously tend to become totalitarian. That is, they tend to reach all human endeavors. So what he's saying is as freedom increases, the secret hidden totalitarianism increases. But of course, the Iron Law of Woke Projection has almost overloaded at this point. It's gone tilt. 
and we can use that to realize that Freudian pedagogy means a Marxist mystification in order to establish totalitarian control, exactly like we would have seen in Mao, where you know whom he praises a lot for exactly this. This is why I and others call Marxism a totalizing ideology. This is why Robert J. Lifton, in his uh, book Thought Reform and the Psychology of Totalism, describes the Maoist experience of brainwashing as a totalizing program. So in Confession by Projection Fashion, Freddy confirms that his Marxist cult thought reform program must also be totalizing. No category, he says, no category or enterprise can escape falsification because any exception might become a threat to the sacredness of the established order. In this sense, schooling at whatever level plays one of the most vital roles as an efficient mechanism for social control. And all I want to say here is indeed, right? So he's saying that nothing, that the society won't allow anything to be Marxist, Marxified, falsified through Marxism, because any exception becomes a threat to the sacredness of the established order. That's what the dialectic of enlightenment is talking about, that the enlightened liberal society itself becomes a, mytho- a, myth- a mythology, a, a reified mythology. Rationality becomes irrationality and maintains itself as a giant mythology that upholds the established order and doesn't allow anybody to question it. The civic religion of the liberal order becomes absolute is the conspiracy theory that they're throwing down. So schooling at whatever level plays one of the most vital roles as an efficient mechanism for social control. He says, so schooling is made to control people into re, uh, re, Imagine or not reimagining, recreating, repurposing, reproducing this sort I was looking for. The new is a reword, reproducing the existing social order and thus maintaining uh, the order that's protected by that mythology. But of course, the Iron Law Woke projection is here too. Marxist taking over schooling becomes a very efficient mechanism for social control. Duh. He says it is not hard to find educator who educators whose idea of education is, quote, to adapt the learner to his environment. And as a rule, former edu- formal education has not been doing much more than this. Okay, so we've got to reinvoke some more of the deep Marxist crap he's been talking about. Remember, he said what distinguishes men from animals is that animals are forced to adapt to their environment, whereas men adapt their environment to themselves. That's the fundamental distinction. He draws on, he quotes Marx on this point in this book. So what he's saying is it's not hard to find educators whose idea of education is to adapt the learner to his environment. In other words, to domesticate him like an animal. And as a rule, formal education has not been doing much more than this. That's what he's saying. That the schooling that we have adapts the learner to his environment. It teaches him to succeed in the existing society. That's all education as we normally conceive of it. Formal education, it's all, we, it's all it really does, is adapts the learner to, to his environment. In other words, it steals what makes him fundamentally human and reduces him to the quality of an animal or a machine, just like Karl Marx said in 1844. And this is the same justification that they give for why they need groomer schools. Kids they say, you know, are groomed into their religions. Parenting is a form of grooming itself, so they need to groom in schools. Kids, they tell us, already see porn and encounter sexuality. Therefore, they need to teach those things in order for kids to correctly contextualize them, to correctly understand them. Kids see porn on the internet. Kids see uh, sexuality out in the world. So they need teachers to teach 
sexuality, comprehensive sexuality education in order for them to understand it correctly. The parents can't be trusted to do that. But they get to do the grooming because they can use it to teach kids to liberate themselves from the established order on the big picture scale. So it's justified for them and necessary even. So that's why they get to be groomers. Believe it or not, he still needs more straw for his straw man here. He says, generally speaking, the good student is not one who is restless or intractable or one who reveals one's doubts or wants to know the reason behind facts or one who breaks with the pre-established models or one who denounces a mediocre bureaucracy or one who refuses to be an object. To the contrary, the so-called good student is one who repeats, who renounces critical thinking, who adjusts to models and who quote, thinks it pretty to be a rhinoceros, which is referring to some song. On the other hand, the teacher who makes himself or herself divine, as sacred as the sacredness of the school, appears most often as an untouchable, literally and figuratively. A student may not even put a hand on the teacher's shoulder as a gesture of affection. This intimacy of mortals would threaten the necessary distance between teacher and students. Students, after all, should do nothing other than receive the contents that the educator transfers to them, contents that are impregnated with the ideological character vital to the interests of the sacred order, the existing society. So he wants students and teachers to touch each other? Okay. He's kind of going full grammar schools here then all the way but I don't think he's really like that. Maybe he is, I don't know. But then he gets weird. This gets real weird. And then he wants to give an example of a song that kids might learn in their, and sing in their domesticating schools. And um, so the, the domesticating school straw man is very full, but Freddy's still stuffing. Freddy is still practicing the pronunciation. Is still stuffing more straw in it. So he takes this famous radical song by Tom Paxton, um, written in the 1960s. He was a leftist folk singer, an American folk singer, popular in the 60s, Tom Paxton. And he actually takes one of his songs and puts it in the book. The song was written to satirize 1950s-style education. I can't sing it because I don't know the tune. I didn't look it up, but it says, and he puts the entire thing there. What did, This is an example, he says, of what you might... He says, let me get to the, the, the at the bottom, he says, with one or two variations, this very well... Uh, this might very well be the song that millions of children from different parts of the world would sing if we were to ask them what they learned in school today. And the song goes, what did you learn in school today, dear little boy of mine? What did you learn in school today, dear little boy of mine? I learned that Washington never told a lie. I learned that soldier, soldiers seldom die. I learned that everybody's free. And that's what the teacher said to me. That's what I learned in school today. That's what I learned in school. I learned that policemen are my friends. I learned that justice never ends. I learned that murderers die for their crimes, even if we make a mistake sometimes. I learned our government must be strong. It's always right and never wrong. Our leaders are the finest men, and we elect them again and again. I learned that war is not so bad. I learned about the great ones we've had. We've fought in Germany and in France, and someday I might get my chance. That's what I learned in school today. That's what I learned in school. I'm telling you, the straw man is crazy. But you can hear the seeds of so much of the rebellion that they've been teaching here, right? I learned that policemen are my friends. It's obviously sardonic. I learned that justice never ends. Sardonic. I learned that murderers 
die for their crimes even if we make a mistake sometimes. And Kim Kardashian and her weird uh, death roll or death row uh, uh, activism makes an appearance. They maybe get to go to war. The left can't meme. That's all there is to say. The left can't meme. But this gets weirder. Believe it or not, he now takes this whole thing in a critically, a fully critical theory definition uh, direction by satirizing university education by extension of this context. He says, yet if we expand our curiosity and begin to ask students what they learned in the university today, their responses will not be dramatically different from that of the child in Tom Paxton's song. Among other things, they might say, today at university, we learned that objectivity in science requires neutrality on the part of the scientist. We learned today that knowledge is pure, universal, and unconditional, and that the university is the site of this knowledge. We learned today, although only tacitly, that the world is divided between those who know and those who don't. That is, those who do manual work. And the university is the home of the former, of the people who know. We learned today that the university is the temple of pure knowledge and that it has to soar above earthly preoccupations such as mankind's liberation. We learned today that reality is a given, that it is our scientific impartiality that allows us to describe it somewhat as it is. Since we have described it as it is, we don't have to investigate the principal reasons that the world would uh, that would explain it as it is. But if we should try to denounce the real world as it is by proclaiming a new way of living, we learned at the university today that we would no longer be scientists but ideologues. We learned today that the economic or that economic development is a purely technical problem that the underdeveloped peoples are incapable sometimes because of their mixed blood their nature or climatic reasons we were informed that blacks learn less than whites because they are genetically inferior even when they demonstrate unquestionable capacities for example dancing dexterity and enduring healthy physical labor this is some critical theory sarcasm And so he finishes the chapter with a rant after that incredible little piece. He says, whether through schooling or otherwise, what is indisputable, this is a rant, whether through schooling or otherwise, what is indisputable is that all this mystification winds up as an obstacle to people's critical capacity, thus favoring the preservation of the status quo The internalization of these myths, along with many others, explains the contradiction between forms of action and actual choices made by many people. Many speak in reference to the human being, and this human being becomes fossilized in a banal phrase because they don't recognize the human dimension in these very men who are dominated as objects. Many claim to be committed to the cause of liberation, but they conform to those very myths that negate humanistic acts. Many analyze social mechanisms of oppression and simultaneously, through equally repressive means, they hold back the students they are lecturing. Many declare they are revolutionaries, but they don't trust the oppressed they pretend to liberate as though this weren't an an aberrant contradiction. Many want a humanistic education, yet they also want to maintain the social reality in which people find themselves dehumanized. In brief, they fear liberation. And in fearing liberation, they do not dare, sorry, they dare not risk constructing it in a brotherhood with those who are deprived of freedom. So this is Friday's humanistic education. It's going to be his way or the highway. 
the guy's a totalitarian. I actually found, uh, I was doing some reading the other day and I found an old document from the seventies. Uh, it was an assessment of Freddie's work written in English in I think 1972 and published. It's very hard to read. I would read some of it, but I, it's hard to read because the PDF is spotty because it's like a scan of like a mimeograph or something. Um, anything that's in italics is almost impossible to decipher. But at, at any rate, there are, there, there's a fellow Griffiths, forget Griffiths first name, um, that wrote this scathing, 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 uh, criticism of Friday. And what he actually says is that he's a totalitarian. He says he's all about dialogue, but he's only about dialogue with the oppressed. You can't dialogue with the people in power. He doesn't want to have a conversation. He doesn't want to try to solve problems. He wants to radicalize the oppressed. That's all he wants to do. And he's a, t- a totalitarian. There's only one way, his way. Every other way is destroyed. He, in this chapter, lays out that every other way is dehumanizing. He is the only person offering a mechanism of anything that could be considered humanistic or humanizing. Everything else in the world is dehumanizing. So this is the Freudian education method kind of in a nutshell. Uh, what I want to give you here to close this out, because in a sense, this is, I have two more, two more to do. Okay. Um, two more to do with this, uh, book, the politics of education. We're going to do two in chapter 10. Chapter 10 is a weird chapter. The first part of the chapter, which is pretty short, is actually about education, broadly speaking, but it's also tied into religion. It's actually the chapter is about the church. It's about liberation theology and the church explicitly from the title of the chapter. And then the second half is almost exclusively about the church with dipping back and making little jabs about education. So we're about done as far as this book goes with Friday and education. I think at the end of this chapter, we can say that we've really concluded, we'll have some thoughts in the next chapter uh, about it, but we've really concluded with what we're going to say about the politics of education regarding education. I say that noting that we have to talk about the first, the next episode of the podcast, which does the first half of chapter 10, we'll talk about that, but it's a really weirdly religious thing. You'll see it's super weirdly religious. It's the death and rebirth thing. Uh, and I want to talk about that in terms of thought reform and some other stuff. So I want to give you actually a vision. Somebody sent me this article, uh, which is in, um, a German journal, DVV international, uh, see if I can see what DVV stands for again. Uh, it's German though. Uh, maybe it's down at the bottom. Maybe it's not. I have no idea. Deutscher, Deutscher, uh, it's a tiny print, so I'm trying to read it. Uh, Folks, a school for bond or something like this. I can't actually read it. It's too small. Sorry, my eyes are not as good as they once were. I've read too many of these friggin' books. But what it is, is um, it's a, a German school-based journal. Okay. Uh, I, I can't actually see what it says. But this article that was published in 2007 where they took Freddy's method to Nigeria and tried to see what happens when Freddy's method is employed in Nigeria. So Paulo Freddy's, I'm going to read, it's actually pretty short. I'm going to read a bit of this to you. Um, Paulo Freddy's, the title is Paulo Freddy's Literacy Teaching Methodology, Application and Implications of the Methodology in Basic Literacy Classes in Ibadan, Oyo State, Nigeria. It's a, the, the abstract 
to the paper says the findings of the study showed that three prominent issues, mismanagement of the nation's resources, leadership and corruption, as well as the political crisis in the states, dominated the discussion of learners at stage one of the Freudian process. At stage two, the generative words discovered by the facilitators were crude oil, stealing, pocket, begging, poverty, suffering, crying, hunger, crisis, dying. Those words were further depicted in pictorial images showing the core situations in the lives of the people. At stage three, the learners have been thoroughly conscientized and sensitized with the pictorial images, so thoroughly, I should say, that they were no longer interested in the acquisition of literacy skills. In other words, the first two of the purposes of Freudian methodology, political consciousness, was achieved by the study. The implication of this finding is that facilitators wishing to apply Freud's teaching methodology must be careful and, in fact, exercise caution in the application of the first two stages so as not to signal the death of the third stage. The actual process of literacy training may not take place if the political consciousness of the learners has been thoroughly raised. Okay, so this is a short paper describing the Freudian method and what happened when they tried to apply it in a couple or a handful of different experimental, quasi-experimental, they call it quasi-empirical schools in Nigeria, and specifically in Oyo State, uh, Ibadan, Oyo State, Nigeria. Okay, and I'm not going to read the whole paper. I'm actually just going to kind of um, give the summary of the uh, methodology and then what happened. Okay, so after a little of an introduction, they say the Freudian literacy method, and they quote Friday, they say, education which fails to recognize the highly educational role of righteous anger that protests against injustice, against indifference, against exploitation and violence is wrong. So you have to have righteous anger. That's the point of education. That's, that's a quote from Friday. They don't cite where the quote is from, so I can't tell you where it's from. It's just in a little quote box. It says... The literacy teaching method proposed by Paulo Freire comprises three stages. Stage one is tagged the study of the context. At this stage, a team studies the context in which the people live in order to determine the common vocabulary and the problems that confront the people in a particular area. To know this, words are elicited from the people themselves through informal conversations. The task of the team is to faithfully record the words and the language used by the people during the informal conversation. Okay, so stage one of the Freudian process put into action is to data mine people. Using dialogue, if you're doing a pure Freudian method, you're having informal conversations. Rather than trying to teach the people who came to you to learn how to read, for example, you just talk to them. Figure out what's going on in their lives, learn their context, learn the... Uh, it's the study of context, and, and, and it, this can take place in different modes, though, than dialogue. It could be, for instance, the result of surveys, relentless surveys through social-emotional learning, say, in the United States, or through having friendly, you know, personal-type chats in class about relationships, about you know, whatever that we see in all these libs of TikTok videos, Okay. So the goal is to learn the context and identify key themes where, in my opinion, or my summary, I should say, where radicalizable content is able to be derived. Stuff that will emotionally and uh, psychologically engage and radicalize the learners. That's to be identified and recorded. How do people talk about certain things? What words do they bring up? And what they're looking for are the things that bring out the real context, the actual context in which they live, which is the Marxist understanding of those that we just discussed. Stage two, they tell us, is tagged selection of words from the discovered vocabulary. 
At this stage, all the words suggested during the informal conversations of people are carefully taken note of, and the team chooses the words that are most charged with background meaning for the people. See, that's what I said. You, it wasn't my opinion. It's literally my summary is they pick the words that are most likely to agitate in a Marxist direction. The team is not only interested, they say, in the typical expressions of the people, but also in words that have major emotional content for them. These words, which Freire called generative words, have power to generate other words for the learners. Yeah, also emotional reactions. Derp. Also political consciousness and radicalization. Derp, derp. This is why the generative method is the theft of education. The most important criterion for the choice of a word by the team is that it must have the capacity to confront the social, cultural, and political reality in which the people live. The word must suggest and mean something important for the people. The word must provide both mental and emotional stimulation for the learners. Religion of pathos. You have to get them emotionally engaged. Stage three is tagged the actual process of literacy training. The stage comprises three substages, motivational sessions, the development of teaching materials, and literacy training, aka decodification. The motivational sessions have have to do with the showing of pictures without words by the coordinator. The purpose of this is to provoke, that's your codification by the way, provoke among the learners some sort of debate and discussion about the situations in which the people live. Through this, the literate learners see themselves in the process of learning and reflecting, which helps to promote group consciousness. Okay, And it actually goes on. It says the development of teaching materials involves the team developing materials appropriate to each situation. The materials are to be developed are of two types. The first type consists of a set of cards or slides showing the breakdown of words into their parts. The second type is a set of cards which depict situations related to the words and designated to impress various images upon the learners. These pictures are designed to stimulate the learners to think about the situations which the words imply. Freire conceptualizes this process of developing images of concrete realities as codification. Through various picture situations in the lives of the people are codified or represented in pictorial pictorial form, the codification process is the distinctive aspect of Freudian literacy method. They not only serve as aids in the teaching process, but also help initiate and stimulate the process of critical thinking among the learners. In the literacy training, decodification... Each session is built around words and pictures. Here the generative words are printed with a picture of the word. The literacy class begins to break down both the word and the picture. The learners discuss the existential situation of the word and the relationship between the word and the reality it signifies. Marxism. After this, a slide is projected showing how the word is separated into syllables. The family of the first syllable is shown. For example, the word poverty could be broken down into three syllables. Imagine trying to learn to read syllabically in English. Oh my God. The family of this is what they, it works in Portuguese, but it doesn't translate. My God. The family of the first syllable, po, poverty, is then shown as pu, pe, pa, pi, etc. A similar process is applied for the remaining syllables. Nobody's going to learn to read, but don't worry. Don't worry. They're not going to get there. The learners are then led to create other words using these symbol, syllables in their families. At the same time, they continue to, this is how you would teach a phonetic syllabic language like Portuguese or Spanish, not, oh my God, I can't believe they would just 
translated straight over into English. So stupid. Anyway, at the same time, they continued to discuss and analyze critically the real context represented in the codifications. In essence, the literacy uh, education is closely connected with the cultural and political life of the learners. One might say it's, I don't know, culturally responsive or culturally competent teachers presenting culturally relevant learning. One might say that, right? Okay. So what happened? What happened? The application of the Freudian method in the selected literacy centers. With the assistance of the research teams, the three stages were effectively put into practice in the selected literacy centers. Stage one, the study of the context. At the literacy centers, uh, organized by the University of Ibadan, Department of Adult Education, the basic literacy learners, consisting of 20 learners from different ethnic and cultural backgrounds, participated in the discussion of the context. The discussion, sparked off by the learners themselves, predominantly centered on mismanagement of the nation's resources. In bold. So all they wanted to talk about, rather than learning to read, is mismanagement of the nation's resources. The discussants noted that the nation is overwhelmingly blessed with many resources, among which are crude oil, gold, bitumen, good agricultural land. They bemoaned the situation that despite the abundance of these resources, the majority of the people still suffer in terms of lack of good roads, lack of good health facilities, massive unemployment, lack of power and water supply, etc. The discussants were extremely furious that the nation's resources have been massively mismanaged by the nation's successive leaders, which has led to a situation where people beg in the land of plenty. And this kind of goes on. They talk about leadership and corruption. They talk about political crisis in the states. Um, the Agboo Baptist Literacy Center, managed by the Baptist Church, a similar discussion took place among 18 basic literacy learners of different, different ethnic and cultural backgrounds. The discussion centered on leadership corruption. The discussants were most moved were almost moved to tears during the discussion process that the nation has made a lot of money from the sale of crude oil without the nation having anything to show for it. The discussants overwhelmingly agreed that, that the poverty in the land is caused because, quote, the monies made have been stolen by past and present leaders into their private pockets. This is the reason why there is no money to provide good roads, electric supply, food, drugs, and our clinics and hospitals, jobs, and good houses. All the money has been stolen by government people, end quote. At one of the literacy centers organized by Oyo State Agency for Adult and Non-Formal Education in a community called Ido, an Ido local government area, 20 basic literacy learners constituted the culture circle. The discussion focused on political crisis in states. The discussants believed that the majority of those who contest for positions during elections do so because, quote, of the money they want to steal when they get into office, end quote. They submitted that this is the reason why politicians fight to get office. They wondered why many politicians will want to contest the same position if, that, if not that, quote, they want to steal, end quote. They concluded that the political crisis will continue in the country as long as, quote, people get into office because they want to steal, end quote. Okay, so that's the generative words, generative themes discovery process. You have these political conversations. Now, I'm going to give you a little anecdote. I've been training martial arts for a long time. I have this Chinese martial art I practice. It's this whole thing. We're always talking, talking, talking. We're always running our mouths. We're always talking about different stuff. Sometimes it's martial arts related. Sometimes it's not. But the deal is when it's time for us to train, right? Our, our, our teacher's rule is that all that, all that shit stops. You have to set that aside. In fact, we primarily try to do our 
learning, not even in a regular weekly school or whatever, but in a retreat setting where we all go away and we put away the world for a while and we study the thing we're there to study. And what we're about to see is that the Freudian method literally inverts this. The goal is now to talk about the politics all the time to get the generative words because they evoke the emotional reaction. They enable the Marxist conscientization. They are the triggers that enable them to induce the vulnerability to bring them into bring people into the cult. The conscientization process is cult thought reform, and it requires finding spots of vulnerability, spots of emotion, etc. When we learn this martial art, it is actually like the pedagogical rule is all that shit stays out of the room. All that shit is left somewhere else. We do not talk about it. We don't get into it. It doesn't come up. And teacher is teacher and students are students. Freire is, Freire is getting rid of that completely. Now let's see. That's the, we already heard some. We already get a taste of what it's like when you start putting this into practice. What happens when you mess that up? What happens when you blur those boundaries and blur those lines? What happens when you implement this crap in reality? Stage two. The selection of words from the discovered vocabulary. From the discussions of the learners, the generative words written by the team of facilitators were resources, money, abundance, crude oil, stealing, pocket, begging, plenty, poverty, suffering, frustration, crying, hunger, crisis, dying, death. Now pause for a second to realize they're trying to teach these poor Nigerian people to read. Those are the friggin' words they pick. Not see dick run. Not one syllable words that they can learn to sound out. Resources, abundance, frustration, suffering. Great. And so what happened when they brought the generative words back in the codification process? These words were later depicted in pictorial, pictorial form, showing the concrete realities and situations in the lives of the people. The pictorial display provoked an emotional state of pity and anger among the discussants. Some of them could not talk, while most of them were moved to tears, asking the question, Why? 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 Sounds like it went great. Stage three, the actual process of literacy training. After the completion of stage two, it came as a great surprise to the facilitators that the discussants were not willing to participate in the literacy teaching and training process. Huh, how the hell about that? They were in a state of emotional wreck. <laughs> wow. They were furious, angry, shouting and restless. They were shouting, change, 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 like an Obama rally. They were shouting, change, 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 cursing furiously those who have in one way or the other contributed to the suffering of the people. The bottom line, acquisition of basic literacy skills did not make any meaning to them and was in fact irrelevant. With some of them turning and asking the facilitators, what have you people who are learned done to change the situation? Rather, you have worsened the situation when you yourself get to the position. So what happened when they tried to do the Freudian education method in Nigeria in 2007? They made the students into emotional racks. 
by provoking emotional reactions and making that the center of education within appropriate terms. Some of them could not talk, while most of them were moved to tears, asking the question, why, why? doesn't even have question marks, it's exclamation marks in the text. Why, 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 why? Then they refused, to the shock of the educators, they refused to participate in literacy training any longer. They didn't want to learn to read. The bottom line, acquisition of basic literacy skills, not they didn't want to. The acquisition of basic literacy skills did not make any meaning to them and was in fact irrelevant. And then they turned on the facilitators. What have you done to make things better? Nothing. You just got in the position. You just made it worse. They were furious. They were angry. They were shouting. They were restless. They wanted change, change, change. Exclamation marks all over the place. They were cursing furiously. They were conscientized. That's what happened. They were conscientized. And so you send your kids to Palo Friday schools and you think they're going to learn to read. You think they're going to learn to write. You think they're going to learn math. You think they're going to learn history because it's an engaging method. It's culturally responsive. It's culturally relevant. It's being engaged by a culturally competent teacher. It's using social and emotional learning that's got transformative content to bring in equity. It's going to be engaging for the students and meet them at the level of their emotional reactions in the terms of their social realities. And you think they're going to learn because these liars told you this more engaging education method works. But no. Let's just read that again. The pictorial display provoked an emotional state of pity and anger among the discussants. Some of them could not talk, while most of them were moved to tears, asking the question, why, 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 why? The discussants were not willing to participate in the literacy teaching training process. They were in a state of emotional wreck. They were furious, angry, shouting, and restless. They wanted change, 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 shouting it, cursing furiously the people who have created the situation they've been conscientized to. The bottom line, acquisition of basic literacy skills did not make any meaning to them any longer and was in fact irrelevant, and they turned on their teachers and said, you helped create this problem. And these idiots that wrote this paper say that what this means is you've got to be careful in how you conscientize so you can still use the method because it clearly works. The point of the Freudian education is the conscientization. It is not learning to read. Your kids will not learn to read. It is not learning to do math. They will not learn to do math. It is not learning any academic content curriculum at all. It is to conscientize into emotional wreck activists who feel like they have to go out and change the world as a bunch of do know-nothing doers, as change agents. That's what the Freudian method is about. That's what it does. That's why our kids are exhibiting abysmal learning rates in our Freudian schools. That's why they are coming out as crazed activists as zealots, which is why they're coming home and turning on their parents and calling them racists and blaming them and the country for having created this mess that they have been conscientized into believing constitutes their actual reality. That's what this is actually about. This is humanizing education. This is what Paulo Freire has done. And so what Paulo Freire has achieved with his method being adopted so widely, thanks largely to people like Henry Drew, 
what has been achieved is literally in no other terms possible, the theft of education. I don't want to say that we had a perfect education system. I don't want to talk. We can talk about values, et cetera, whatever you want to talk about the issues. Oh, it was this and it was that. It wasn't doing great. It could have done better. All that is way off the track through the generative themes that then turn into the codification, decodification, conscientization process. But through the generative themes method, education is stolen. Education is not happening anymore. The very premise of education is being stolen from our children. It is being stolen from taxpayers who think that schools are there to come up with engaging curriculum in order to educate the students, but it is not. The content itself, the reading lesson, the math lesson, the writing lesson, the history lesson, the social studies lesson, the gym class lesson, the football coach, whatever that you can systematize SEL into or whatever else has been stolen to become a conscientization tool. And once you conscientize, the students, the learners no longer see that learning academic content has any meaning for them. It doesn't matter. It's a distraction from the change, change, change that they demand at their Obama rally. Paulo Ferretti erected a system that enables the theft of education while retaining the outward shape of curriculum. It looks like they're teaching math, but they're conscientizing using math. It looks like they're teaching reading, but they're conscientizing using literacy, reading and writing. It looks like they're teaching history, but they're conscientizing with the 1619 project. It looks like they're teaching science, but they're conscientizing by talking about how science cannot be neutral, which is a theme that was presented even here by Friday. It is the theft of your children's education. It is a wholesale heist. It is beyond scandalous. It is literally the theft of the most important generation to generation process. And, and uh, I don't want to call it a commodity because that would play into their hands. But the, 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 the thing that we offer to our children, their ability to become educated, to become knowledgeable, to become people who know things and can think and can contextualize and can solve problems, that has been stolen by Freudian Marxists who want to use those things in order to do something completely different. They call it humanizing education in this chapter. They call it uh, liberating education. They call it emancipatory education. They call it a lot of things. It's not. It is not. It is the theft of education into a th to transform it into a thought reform program to make Marxist activists. Period. The end. Paulo Ferreira set up the system by which educational activists and critical pedagogy were able to steal education from every generation of Americans so long as this lasts. That includes your children today because your children go to Paulo Freire's schools thanks to these activists. This has to stop and it has to stop right now. We have to get the Freudian method out of our schools. We have to learn to recognize it for what it is with this generative themes culturally responsive, culturally relevant, culturally competent, ethnic studies, multicultural, blah, 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 blah. It's all the same. Comprehensive sexuality education, social and emotional learning, it's all the same. Every single fad in education that you can think of for the past 50 years with maybe like two exceptions, 
probably has roots in Friday. It is the theft of your children's education, and it has to absolutely be stopped. And the people who did it need to be held accountable for what they've done. The people who knew what this represented, a hijacking and stealing of our education, our children's education for their activist purposes, should be held to account. Jail would be good, but firing them from any position that they have, uh, removing any honorifics that they've received in their lives, uh, would be a, a bare minimum beginning, in my opinion. But so now you understand. This is what Friday's about. We've got two more in this book. We'll go to we'll go to the pedagogy of the oppressed as promised. After this, as we work our way through, um, continue to spice in or splice in some other other material, queer theory in particular. But this really ends the educational material uh, that I'm going to cover in the politics of education. At the end of chapter nine. We'll do the religious stuff in a couple podcasts soon, and we'll talk then.